Job chapter 13, we're going to read a few verses. It says in verse 1, Job continues his rebuttal from, from chapter 12. He says, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. Now hear my reasoning, and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God, and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes and your defenses are defenses of clay. We'll pause right there. In the last several chapters, Job has been dealing with his friends who at first held out hope of comfort but have, in fact, heaped up condemnation. In chapter 11, Zophar declared that God's punishment was less than he deserved. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, that Job was incapable of understanding God's ways in chapter 11, verses 7 through 12. And that he, his best chance was to confess his sin and find hope in chapter 11, verses 13 through 20. And Job's response in chapter 12 included the fact that Job didn't appreciate all of this condemnation from a know-it-all in verses, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. That both creatures and the creation are aware that God has great power, great knowledge, great understanding. And so... God's power and knowledge and understanding means that he's in control of all things. And so Job challenges Zophar to listen to his defense in verses 1 through 6. And to stop putting words in God's mouth that he never meant to say in verses 7 through 12 in this chapter. And that it's not helpful to tell lies in order to try and defend God. And that Job is willing to risk death. If that's what it means, in order to speak his mind and declare his innocence in verses 13 through 19. Job refuses to give in to the lies, to the false accusations, to the false arguments, the false reasonings of his so-called friends. Now remember what Job's friends really think. What they really think about Job is, guess what? All of this tragedy, all of these problems, all of your suffering has happened because there's something wrong with you, Job. There's something wrong, something broken, something wrong. And if you will just admit that you're wrong, then you'll be fine. And so, they're accusing him of experiencing all of this pain and all of this problem because of willful, unconfessed sin. 
But again, remember, for those of you who've been with us since the beginning of Job, and you've read chapter 1, and you've read chapter 2, you realize that there's a cosmic drama that's unfolding right before your eyes, of which Job is unaware, of which his friends are unaware. And so in verse 1, Job says, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. In other words, he has heard and understood all of these platitudes that has been given in chapter 11. Remember, Bildad represents human tradition. Remember, Eliphaz represents human experience. And remember, Zophar is is a person who is representative of the limited human experiences that we have in order to try and figure out what's going on. And so what Job basically says in verse 2, what you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. The, the, the idea here is that these guys have sort of ganged up on Job and they're giving him all kinds of platitudes and aphorisms and clever sayings. He says in verse 3, but I would speak to the Almighty... And I desire to reason with God. It's his way of saying, I've had it with you. I've had it with these conversations. As a matter of fact, if I'm going to make any kind of headway in order for me to truly understand my condition, I guess I'm going to have to get my answers from God. He says, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to reason with God. We don't find out until later in the book of Isaiah that that's the invitation that he gives. He says, come, let us reason together, you and I. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. In verse, three, in verse 4 he says, but you, speaking of Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, you forgers of lies or fabricators of deceit, You are all worthless physicians. In other words, you've shown up and tried to bring me some sense of health and some sense of well-being, but that's just not who you are. And so he's in, in effect saying, how can you make a useful diagnosis? Or how can you plan an appropriate treatment if you're relying on false or incomplete information? And this is the problem that all human beings face apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the revelation of God, and apart from the revelation of Christ. They're left with their own observation, with their own human wisdom, with their own human conclusions. Job speaks for a lot of hurting people when he says in verse 5, Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. People in pain who get advice from so-called well-meaning people who only heap hurt, condemnation, and injury. Sometimes the best possible thing that you could ever do is say nothing. The Bible is full of warnings to guard our speech. And exercise restraint. By the way, if there's a little voice inside of you saying, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. It's okay for you to go, well, since I don't know what to say, maybe I better not say anything. Are there going to be times when that's exactly the right course of action? 
That's exactly right. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 27, the, proverb, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon says, He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. In verse 28 it says, Even if a fool is, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace, when he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. A whole movie was was made based on that one verse. Even if a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace, when he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. It was a a Woody Allen movie of of this guy who goes to Washington, D.C., and he's in there, and, and he doesn't say anything, and everybody is going, ooh. They're just shocked and surprised by his silence. Chuck Swindoll writes... Quote, Zophar should have known that it's better not to speak at all than to heap abuse on someone who has already suffered enough. His silence would have been a welcome relief for Job. And that's true. In verse 6, Job writes, Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. So in verses 7 through 12, Job begs, don't put words in God's mouth. In verse 7 it says, will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? When Job is using those terms, remember, will you speak wickedly for God? The idea is, how can you be representing God? And how can you say that you have the mind of God or the heart of God or the words of God when you don't even have any idea what the mind of God or the heart of God or the character of God is in this situation? And talk deceitfully for him. Remember what each and every one of them have said. There's something wrong with you, Job. There's something broken with you. There's some secret sin inside of your heart. And and remember, God has revealed it to me because guess what? Um, I've watched human beings and there's none righteous, no, not one. And that's true. Eliphaz appeals to human experience. Bildad is appealing to, to human tradition. And, and as, they, as they look at Job's situation and, and as, they anal- as they provide an analysis, what they're basically saying sounds true, sounds right, sounds good. But few things are more deadly and few things are more damaging than misrepresenting God. Misrepresenting his heart. Misrepresenting his character. And remember what each and every one of Job's friends have said. Job, the problems that you have are due to the fact of your sin. The problem? None of that's true. Steve Sensing in a, in a, uh, in a website called TheologicalMusings.com has given us a little bit of insight. He, he writes, if your message is not filled with hope, you might be misrepresenting God. He's doing it along the lines of Jeff Foxworthy. You, you know you're a redneck if, or you know you're a this if. Steve, <laughs> Steve Sensing says, if you tell people that they need to come to you 
to understand the message of scripture, you might be misrepresenting God. If you think that being real means talking more about the wind and the waves in your life than about the one who calms the storm, you might be misrepresenting God. If you think that people who don't attend Sunday morning meeting are outside of God's covering and protection, you might be misrepresenting God. Think about that for just a moment. For those people who say, if you don't show up to church and if you don't do this and if you don't do that, then God hates you and he's mad at you. No, the pastor might be mad at you, but God doesn't hate you, and he's not mad at you. He writes, if you think that sickness, financial problems, hurricanes, broken bones, auto accidents, and terrorist attacks are all tools of God to teach you something, you might be misrepresenting God. If you think that a person can't live above his or her circumstances and walk in peace and victory, you might be misrepresenting God. If you think that someone is not being real unless they tell you they're struggling with some huge temptation, you might be misrepresenting God. Sometimes it's good for you not to tell. Sometimes it's better. And by the way, sometimes you might disclose things about yourself to someone and they take advantage of you. He writes, if you think that the only legitimate types of prayer for a Christian are prayers of lament, you might be misrepresenting God. And the list goes on and on. In verse 8 he says, will you show partiality for him? The idea being, are you seriously thinking that you're representing him? Will you contend for God? The idea being, Job's friends, are you seriously thinking that you're advocating for God, that you're representing God, and that you're representing his mind, his heart, and his nature? Verse 9, will it be well when he searches you out? Think about what Job is saying. You had a whole lot to say about me and my circumstances. What are you going to do when God shows up and he starts to look in your head, in your heart, in your mind, in your circumstances? Will you be able to bear the scrutiny? You know what I learned a long time ago? It's a bad idea to accuse anyone of anything that you yourself have been guilty of. By the way, if you take that simple, simple statement and apply it to your life, 99% of every accusation you ever make will go away. He says, or can you mock him? is one mocks a man. The idea being, most people wouldn't knowingly try to mock God. But we live in a culture and a society that is the exception to the rule. All you have to do is turn on the radio, uh, watch television. You will find people mocking God, mocking Jesus, mocking the Bible. But what Job's basically Stating to his friends, if you were to ask his friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, do you love God? Do you honor God? Do you, do you think it's a good idea to mock God and misrepresent God? Each and every one of them would say, that's a bad idea. Can you mock him as one mocks a man? With the idea that you can make fun of human beings and you might be able to get away with it, but can you mock God and get away with it? As if God doesn't watch SNL. Or if God doesn't watch Bill Maher. Or God doesn't really understand what's going on on the cable channels. 
In verse 10 it says, he will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Here's the idea. That if you misrepresent God or misrepresent his character in order to make inroads with your family, with your friends, with your culture, with your society. It's the idea that when you're faced with something that is so overwhelmingly false, when you're faced with something, when you're living in a world where people misrepresent God and they misrepresent his character, and you go along with it, will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? The idea is, Once you begin to look at the true standard of evaluation, his holiness, his righteousness, his excellence, what Job is pointing out is to his friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, it isn't about me versus you. It isn't you in comparison to me or me in comparison to you. It's us in comparison to God. And if we start with that standard... Who can stand? That's the idea. Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. You know what a platitude is. It's an aphorism or a wisdom saying that really doesn't stand the test when things are really difficult. When the tough get going, or when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Hey, it's a clever aphorism. But is this the truth of the way that you're going to live your life? Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Job is referring to his friend's arguments as clay. They're wisdom-like ashes. They are, here's the idea. They're weak, they're worthless, and they're utterly indefensible. That's his point. It's like when people come up to you and they say, you know... God isn't really the way the Bible says. Or the revelation that's given in the word of God, you can't take it seriously. Or you can't take it literally. Now again, if the Lord were to appear, or if they had access to the first two chapters of Job, they would be completely blown away by the presence of God. And it's true that the Lord's analysis will shatter their arguments as easily as when you drop a fragile pot. I don't know if you've ever been in the kitchen and someone has snuck up behind you and they've knocked a plate out of your hand. And it hits the floor and then it shatters into pieces. That's what their arguments are like. And so Job cries... I am willing to risk death to declare my own innocence. Look what it says in verse 13. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then then let come on me what may. Job appeals for their silence a second time. He basically says, look, I need all of you to shut up for a minute and just let me say what's on my heart. And then let... Come on me what may. It's Job's way of saying, whatever happened, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. 
Now, again, I need you to think about what you're reading and the context in which you're reading it. Is Job in pain? Yes. Is he suffering? Yes. Is he overwhelmed by agony and grief? Now, I want you to think about this. He's in pain. He's suffering. He's overwhelmed by agony and by grief. And all of the things that are happening in his life have nothing to do with anything specifically that he has done wrong. There's probably been two times in your life where that's happened. It might be under the most bizarre of circumstances that you've never, ever, ever, ever suffered because you never, ever, ever did anything wrong. That hasn't been my experience. My experience is the vast majority of my suffering is related to my wickedness, my stupidity, my selfishness, or some evil choice that I've made. But is it possible, is it possible under certain circumstances that I might be blamed for something that I had nothing to do with? Yeah, every once in a while, that could happen. Job wants to be heard, even if he's wrong. Here's what he's saying. I need to be heard, even if I'm wrong. He's basically saying, Even if God condemns me for it, I think I need to speak. And so in verse 14, he says, Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? This is a Hebraism. It's an idiomatic expression. In our culture and society, we use the expression, Why would I take my own life in my own hands? The idea being, Job is taking his own life in his own hands. Here's the idea. Job is willing to let God reveal whether or not he is innocent or guilty. You've probably said in your life, at some time in your life, as God is my witness. Now, if you've said that as an unbelieving idiot, thinking that there is no God who is really there, and so you swear, has anyone ever said to you, I swear to God. I swear to God. And you get a little bit frightened for them. Because you realize that there is a God and that the God of the universe is really hearing them and is going to hold them accountable for their statement. And you say to them, no, don't do that. You don't, you don't need to do that. Just tell the truth. No, I am telling the truth. But in Job's case... Is Job telling the truth? I think he thinks so, yes. How could Job do such a thing? Remember what he's going to say in the very next verse. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. Think about what he just said. Though he slay me, I will trust him. He also says, he will be my salvation. I know that I shall be 
vindicated. Now, we might turn in our Bibles to Job chapter 13, verse 15, and we might underline this particular passage and put it in our group of favorites of things that we want to know about the book of Job. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. We might think of it in terms of, okay, even though I'm having some hardship, even though I'm having some pain, even though I'm in difficulty, what Job is saying is, I'm tired of arguing with you. I'm taking my case to God. I'm going to trust and hope in the Lord. I'm going to trust him and I'm going to hope in him even if it kills me. But again, I need you to be reminded of the context. Remember the context. Think about the depths of Job's pain. Think about his physical tragedy. Think about his spiritual, emotional, psychological despair. Think about the social rejection. Think about the spiritual condemnation. Think about a person who is weighed down in the most incredible way possible. He can't count on his friends for physical or emotional or spiritual healing. If his life is going to be okay The only way that it's going to be okay is he's going to have to trust God. Have you ever been in that situation? Where you're in a difficulty and try as you may to communicate the pain or the problems of your circumstance. People just don't seem to get it. And you go, wow, if I'm going to be understood, the only way that I'm going to be understood is if God gets me. At the height and the blight of slavery... Black American men and women would sing, Where could I go? Oh, where could I go? Seeking a refuge for my soul. Needing a friend to help me to the end. Where could I go but to the Lord? There may come times when that's exactly the only place. Tragically and sadly... You go to a men's Bible study or a woman's Bible study. You even go to church. And you're hoping that people are going to understand that they're going to get your difficulty, that they're going to share your grief and they're going to understand your circumstance. And they don't. But I need you to understand one more thing. No godless or guilty man would ever say what Job said, I will defend my own ways before him. A person who really knows and loves and trusts and believes the truth about what kind of a God the God is in the Bible. Can you imagine saying to the God of the Bible, look, I'm going to trust that you know the truth about me. You know the truth about my mind. You know the truth about my speech. You know the truth about my heart. You know the truth about my marriage. You know the truth about what I do. You know the truth about what I don't do. If you really know and love God, is it the the height of stupidity to try and fake people out and appeal to God or to try and fake God out? No godless person would really do that. Job's confidence is amazing. His confidence and in his innocence 
is such that here's, in in effect, what he's doing. He's challenging anyone who really knows him to find fault in his life. He's basically saying, look, if you can find fault in my life, I'm willing to shut up and die, and I won't say another word. Thank God I've never, ever had to say that. If you can find fault in my life, and everybody, you know, that it's, it's like the meat counter at King Supers. They just start taking tickets because there's lots of people who can find fault with you. In verse 16, it says, he also shall be my salvation. He also shall be my salvation. He's going to be the one who's going to rescue me. For a hypocrite could not come before him. Job knows the truth about God. He says, listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I've prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Like an attorney who's drawing up a case and he's getting ready to plead his cause. He says in verse 19, who is he who will contend with me? This is his way of saying, look, Who is it that's going to bring charges against me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. Job does his level best to defend himself. Now again, Jesus certainly was meek and mild. But Jesus knew that there would be times when he would have to defend himself. And he would rebuke the Pharisees for their misguided accusations. But does Jesus really defend himself to the full extent in his earthly ministry? He really doesn't. If Jesus wants his enemies and his critics to disappear, all he would have to do is just go, I'm thinking of something made of bread and it's burnt to a crisp. And his enemies become burnt toast. But Jesus is so patient. Jesus is so kind. He is so generous. He is so gracious. Chuck Swindoll writes, We aren't obligated to take the advice of every legalistic, joy-stealing person that comes down the pike. He writes, We're neither ignorant nor unimportant. We're sons and daughters of the Most High God. No one has the right to mistreat us or shame us or take advantage of us. Make it a point to spend time with those who comfort and support and encourage you in your walk with the Lord. If those people around you are offering negativity, unhealthy peer pressure, discouraging and hurtful words, and a lack of sensitivity to your physical and emotional and spiritual needs, Swindoll writes, then you may need to get out of your comfort zone and make some new friends. Unquote. I agree with him. There does come a point in your life where it's okay for you to say, you know what? Wickedness, false accusation, well-meaning but perverse people who are trying to get me to walk away from God or to be discouraged with God or discouraged with my life as a Christian, I just don't need those people. And so Job petitions, there's two things that I'm begging you. 
Look what it says in verse 20. Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. Job is in effect is going to invite God into the conversation from here on. Job's attention now turns fully to the Lord. Job's plea is sincere. His friends have failed to understand him. They've failed to comfort him. They've only added to his misery. They refuse to even consider the possibility that he might be innocent of deliberate sin. And so Job is left with no choice. Again, if he's going to receive comfort and encouragement, it's going to have to come with a direct appeal to the Lord. And so he says in verse 21, withdraw your hand far from me. It's Job's way of saying, could you give me a break? Could we just ease up on the suffering just for a moment? Could you withdraw your hand far from me? That means stop the suffering and let not the dread of you make me afraid. In other words, Job is saying, remove the hand of affliction and stop the terror. Only the Lord would be able to deliver and remove the suffering. And look what he admits. And let not the dread of you make me afraid. Read it again. He's terrified. He's terrified by his ordeal. This from a man who is the most righteous man on the face of the earth. This man from a man who knows and loves the Lord. This from a man who honors God in every part of his being. This from a man who wakes up and woke up every morning and offered sacrifice for his family. This from a man who loved his family and loved the Lord and and provided a cottage industry to help the poor and to help the needy. This from a man who God says... Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on on all the earth? He's terrified. What do you suppose he's terrified by? He could be frightened by what's going to happen next. And now all of a sudden when we have family and we have friends and we have people who are in trouble and we have people who are in need, when we have people who are in hospitals, when we have people who have been diagnosed with cancer, when we have people who have lost all of their hair and their eyebrows and who have stage four cancer and they're terrified by their ordeal, when they've lost their job, when their husband has walked out on them, when their wife has left them, their life is in shambles and difficulty and they're terrified by what might happen next. He has endured unimaginable loss. He has endured agonizing pain. He has the additional burden of not knowing why he's suffering. And so I want you to think about this for just a moment. He is a God-honoring man who's terrified about what might happen next. He appeals to the Lord. He says, then call, and I will answer. Do you understand what Job is saying? Please talk to me. And if you won't talk to me, I'll talk to you. That's what he's saying. Then call, and I will answer. Or let me speak. 
And then you respond to me. Job is saying, meet with me. Meet with me on your terms. Meet with me on my terms. Whether it's my terms or your terms, just do it. Just show up and meet with me. In verse 23, he says, How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Job wants to know, what sins have I committed to deserve this suffering? He felt that God was being unfair with him, unjustly punished, condemned by God. He can't fathom what in the world is going on. In verse 24, he says, why do you hide your face? And why do you regard me as your enemy? And now all of a sudden you begin to understand, if you've ever been in a place where Cry as you might, beg as you might, pray as you might. And you go, Lord, where are you? Lord, I need to hear from you. Lord, I need to understand my circumstances and I need to understand what's going on in my life. So when he says, why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Job wants to know. Why do you seem so far away? Why are you treating me like an enemy instead of like a friend? Remember, he's living in a culture and a society where friends treat friends like friends. And enemies treat enemies like enemies. Job feels like God doesn't love him and doesn't care about him. In verse 25, when he says, will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro, and will you pursue dry stubble? You know what the picture is that Job is giving? Have you ever walked down the street when the fall has come and the leaves have fallen from the ground? And there's the leaf, there's the dried dead leaf right in your path. And you smash the leaf. You step on it and it turns into powder. This is Job's way of saying, I'm nothing. I'm next to nothing. I am like a withered, dead leaf under the crushing weight of your sovereign circumstances. I'm not a threat. I can't harm anyone. Job feels like a mere man, not just any kind of mere man, an insignificant unknown, fragile leaf being blown around, abandoned, targeted for destruction. He feels like a person who, just like you would rake leaves and you'd put them in a pile and you'd burn them, he sees no way out of the nightmare called his life. Now I want you to pause for just a moment. But he still trusts the Lord. He still hopes in the Lord. Why is this an important insight for each and every one of you? Because you've probably asked the question, is it possible for me to feel this way and still trust and hope in the Lord? What's the right answer? The right answer is, it's it's possible. It's clearly possible. You're reading it for yourself. 
Job entreats, why are you storing up accusations? In verse 26, he says, for you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. This is again a Hebraism, for you write bitter things against me. This is sort of a a way of, of, of saying, you didn't just observe me doing bad things or wrong things. It's like the old Santa Claus song that we would sing. You're making a list and you're checking it twice. It it implies intentionality. You're looking, you're recording, you're writing, that there's a permanent record. It's like you write something in an email and you realize the moment that you write it, it exists forever in some sort of electronic land, never to ever go away. By the way, never write anything on your computer that you don't want on the front page of the Denver Post. He's basically saying, why are the iniquities of my youth, why are the errors, the failures, the rebellion, in effect, here's what Job is saying. What's going on? Have you gone all the way back to the beginning of my life? of every weird and wicked thing that I ever did as a kid? Is that what's going on? Are you visiting me because of the wickedness and the stupidity and the wrong things that I did as a kid? By the way, how would you like to be judged based on the worst moment of the worst thing that you've ever done in your life and then everybody's opinion about you is based on that for the rest of your life? You good with that? Hopefully you're not. You would like to think that your life is more than just the sum and the substance of the mistakes that you've made. Especially the worst mistakes that you've made. And so Job's heart trembles. God, is this something that I did when I was a kid? Is this some error or failure or rebellion in my youth and now all of a sudden it's coming back to haunt me? In verse 27... You put my feet in the stocks. It's, again, an idiomatic expression saying, I am unable to move. You put my feet in the stocks. You are making it so that I I can't go anywhere, or if I go anywhere, and watch closely all my paths. This is sort of like what's happening in our own culture and society when you hear in the, the headlines... The NSA has found a way to hack your iPhone and they can go in the back door and now your iPhone becomes a listening device for the government to spy on you. Remember what we learned in the 60s. It's not paranoia if they're really watching you. And so the worst fear comes true. You mean my iPhone is now... A device that the government can use to track my whereabouts and what I am doing and my conversations? Uh, Yeah. I know. It makes you want to throw it away. Unless, of course, out of the 336 million people, and they're collating all of the the data, and then they, they, they think that your text to your granddaughter is somehow going to be in the interest of national security. I doubt it. So here's my point. Job says, you watch closely all my paths. That means like a person tracking another person. This is Job's way of saying, you're watching my every move. 
You watch me wherever I go. Verse 28. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Job feels like God has recorded every sin, punished every sin in verse 26. Job is reaching into the past, looking for a transgression. Maybe God is remembering and punishing him. Job feels that God is watching him with suspicion, waiting for him to slip up, waiting for just the right moment to condemn him. Have you ever felt that way? God is in heaven with a gigantic club and he's waiting to knock you on the head. Job felt that God was allowing him to waste away like so much rotten wood or like a moth-eaten garment. Now I want you to picture Job's physical condition. Think about his physical appearance. He is covered with scabs. He is covered with sores. He has unbearable symptoms. He has the devastating effects of the disease. He has the unbearable stench in his own body. He becomes a type and a picture of every person in the worst moment of the worst circumstance, in the worst chapter of their life. But God's word assures us that he does care. And you see, Job is asking a question that the whole Bible answers. God does care. He cares about every pain. He cares about every trial. He cares about the sickness. He cares about the disease. He cares about the heartache. He cares about the frail human condition and the promises of comfort in this life and the next. In Romans 8.18, which we've been studying on Sunday, it says, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. Paul, no stranger to suffering, and and difficulty himself says, look, I know that there's a God and I know that he loves me and I know that whatever temporary setback or suffering that I have experienced, God is still in control. You probably know someone right at this very moment And some horrible and terrible thing has happened to them. Or some horrible and terrible thing has happened to their friend. Or some horrible and terrible thing has happened. And they're questioning whether or not God is real. Whether or not God loves them. Whether or not the Bible is true. Whether or not they should even go to church. Whether or not they should even read their Bible. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. God has given us a message that Job cried out for. It's found in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, God spoke in different times and in different ways in the past, has in this last day spoken to us by his own dear son. Do you really want to know the truth about how God feels about your circumstance? 
then watch Jesus. Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. In Psalm 103, verse 13, the psalmist wrote, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. If you're a mother or a father, and if you have even an ounce of compassion for your own children, how much more is God's heart filled with compassion for you? As a matter of fact, in verse 28, Job admits that life is brief and filled with trouble. He's going to talk about that even more in chapter 14. Francis Anderson evaluates Job's words with the following. He writes, Here Job shows himself to be a more honest observer, a more exuberant thinker than his friends. The mind reels at the immensity of his conception of God. The little deity of the theology of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar is easily thought and easily believed. But a faith like Job's puts the human spirit to a strenuous work, unquote. Do you understand the God that Job believes in? A God who knows everything about everything. A God who is honest and true and just and good and gracious and perfect and right. And then Job doesn't understand. You see, there's a mystery and an enigma to the kind of God that Job believes in. Job believes in a God who has all of those attributes, but Job says, guess what? I cannot fathom all of his ways and all of his works and all that motivates him and all that informs him as he makes decisions and draws conclusions about the very real world in which we live. And you know what? The truth is, if you're honest, even for one moment with yourself, not one of you is smart enough To make judgments about your own life, let alone somebody else's life, let alone every single life that lives on the planet Earth. Now, all of a sudden, we have a bigger picture than we ever had before of Romans 8.28, Romans 8.28, that God is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. How is that even possible? How is that even possible? How is it that God places each person in each circumstance under exactly the right moment and in exactly the right way with exactly the right amount of pressure in order to bring them to the place that God has intended for you? Only he is loving and good and just and wise. And so, Job invites us to consider whether or not God is a God who is so great and so powerful and so wonderful that the reality is because we don't understand all of his ways, because we can't comprehend the dimensions of the motivations that he is using, that sometimes it's okay for us to just say, Lord, I admit that you are in control and that you have a perfect understanding of why all of this is happening. And and it's okay for me to admit that I don't have a complete understanding. 
My pastor used to say to me over and over again, never give up what you know for what you don't know. Don't allow ignorance or fear or misunderstanding to guide your decisions. So what will guide our decision? What we really know. What we truly know about Jesus and his love. We're going to have communion. All I want you to do is just hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. But let me pray for you. And pray for your circumstance. Heavenly Father, you know what I couldn't possibly know. And that's the circumstances of each individual within the sound of my voice. Lord, you know the person who is doing really well and the person who's not doing so well. You know the person who's come off of the worst year of their life and they're praying, they're desperately hoping that this year will be a better year. Heavenly Father, you know each person's trial, each person's temptation, each person's struggle. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you will speak the exact word that needs to be spoken to every heart. Whether it's a word of love or a word of compassion or a word of encouragement or a word of truth or a word of warning. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would work that work. And Heavenly Father, I pray in particular for the person who in rebellion and sin has walked away from you. And Heavenly Father, I pray that even now in their heart of hearts and in their soul of souls, they would turn from their sin and that they would turn to you. That they would confess their sin and admit, Lord, that only you can provide forgiveness and hope. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would fill their hearts with the knowledge of your goodness and love of your acceptance, of your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that they would experience encouragement and joy. Lord, I pray that they would have the strength to trust you one more day. And again, Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for his love and we thank you that so many of Job's questions are answered in Christ. And Lord, again, we pray that we would heed the warning that we would not pretend to know what we don't know but that we would hold on to the truth that we do know. That you're a loving, wonderful, encouraging God who's looking out not for what's worse, but what's for what's best. So Lord, we pray that we would trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.